0: As we continue on the program. As promised, uh, Jay Jaffe with us right now from fangrafts.com. You can check him out on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. Um, he'll give us a beer pick a little bit later in the segment. And Some of his most recent offerings uh, include this one. Belatedly, MLB addresses outbreak by sidelining Marlins and Phillies. He also wrote about the Marlins outbreak producing a full-blown crisis for MLB. And even earlier this week, before all this stuff, Mike Trout is now fully qualified for the Hall of Fame. And who better? to talk about the Hall of Fame than, than our expert when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, Mr. Jay Jaffe. Jay, we got baseball back right now, although uh, for Marlins uh, and Phillies fans, it's obviously been a bit of a tough week. Uh, but look, uh, the fact that baseball has been able to continue on um, despite the first crisis and hopefully the last um, could be uh, signs of at least uh, you know some positivity heading into the 2020 abbreviated season.
1: Well,
2: I don't think anybody should be patting MLB on the back just yet. I mean, I think this was this was uh, uh a near catastrophe. Uh you, if this if the, if what had happened to the Marlins with uh uh what we have now, 18 total positive tests had happened to the Dodgers or the Yankees or um you know, a, another contending team uh and you know, they're and they were basically rendered incapacitated and, and out of action for uh for a week i think uh the reception for what, for for this would be very different because you'd be talking about household names um and uh a high profile embarrassment for for mlb i mean you know the marlins are an unloved and unwatched team uh nobody knows uh who most of those players are we don't we still don't even know who some of the players are um, you know so it's uh, we have yet to see you know whether the whether the uh infection cross teams from the uh uh, Marlins to the Phillies, but this just doesn't look like it was handled responsibly in the first case There's no way those two teams should have played on sunday and i I keep coming back to that as as really um just a big problem that m l b has to overcome thankfully. Uh, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've put the Marlins on hiatus until at least next Tuesday, possibly longer. They put the Phillies on hiatus until Saturday. Um, but the way Rob Manvers was talking about the Marlins returning to play on Wednesday after they were already into the double digits in, in, uh, uh, infections just shows that, uh, um, they're playing from behind here. And, and uh, um, you know, they found the right answer, or at least a, a better answer, um, but only after, uh stepping uh putting the wrong foot forward uh the first time
0: no doubt and the truth is if that if there was ever a team that would have to be sacrificed for a week let it be the marlins because like you said the most well-known uh individual connected with that team is their owner Derek jeter and and the truthful uh thought is unless you're a super baseball fan that plays fantasy baseball or is from miami you ask somebody to name you more than one or two marlins you're probably not going to get uh any kind of an answer
2: Yeah, it's just it's just uh, you know it was what was funny. I mean, not funny, but you know, I guess at least somewhat ironic was you know before uh, or in the wake of Sunday's game, Don Mattingly said that uh, uh, shortstop Miguel Rojas was uh, uh, was kind of involved in you know the ringleader of a group text where the Marlins players said they wanted to play. Rojas was one who turned up positive. I mean, this is their you know their their veteran sage, and it's just like, what are you guys doing, and why is Don Mattingly you know not, you know, not putting his foot down and saying this isn't right. Um, So it's just, it's a failure of leadership. I mean, you know, the failures of leadership, uh, unfortunately, amid this pandemic, uh, uh, we haven't had a lot of good top-down leadership, both, uh, you know, outside of baseball and within. So I guess it's probably par for the course.
0: Meanwhile, Juan Soto um, has been given the okay from Major League Baseball to return from the COVID-19 injured list. But he's still waiting um, to be cleared to play by the city government. So this is an interesting story in itself because he's 21 years of age, one of the best players on the team. They're hopeful that he'll be allowed to work out with them starting Saturday and play in their first game, which would be next Tuesday, at home against the Mets. So here's a guy that tested positive, has now had two negative tests, has been okayed for Major League Baseball to return, but city government has not um, allowed it yet. So there's really a lot of hurdles to deal with in this. It's not just baseball, Jay. There's a lot of things locally as well. Yeah, we've seen I
2: mean, you know this isn't the first time that that uh, that local ordinances uh, have, have collided with uh, MLB's desire to to continue with the season. I mean, we saw there was you know there was controversy over whether the Nationals were going to be allowed to play in Nationals Park right up uh uh you know until until about a week before opening day. Um the Marlins are facing a situation where, uh, they're being told that once they come back to Florida, they're going to have to self-quarantine for 14 days. Um the whole traveling party, not just the infected players. Um Los Angeles, there are some issues about, uh, about self-quarantining. Uh, and the whole Blue jay situation has, has to do with that as well. Um, you know, Major League Baseball just, uh, you know, has, has a cozy relationship with, uh, um you know, with, with, uh, with politics in, in a lot of ways, but, um you know it's i think seeing the limitations of what it can do uh when it comes up against these uh um you know these these public health regulations that uh, um you know are, that are proving to be a, a a real problem for them and uh um you know i think it's 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 unfortunate for soto but i understand why these you know why these restrictions are in place and and you know, really, I think it's going to take uh, some, you know, some more communication between the government, the local governments, and Major League Baseball if they want to smooth this over. Um, but uh, I don't really know what what's how this is going to turn out. It's uh, it's unfortunate to say the least.
0: Is it a positive that because the outbreak happened so early in the season, rather than at another point in time, at least baseball now has a little idea. Uh, from experience with the Marlins about what they could possibly do to try to keep future outbreaks from at least um, you know uh, being given bad decision-making. You mentioned Manfred, and I agree. Sunday never should have happened. And I think for now baseball is going to probably say to themselves, lesson learned, we can't do this again. And even though there could very well be another outbreak like the Marlins, you just got to be smart and, and make sure that it doesn't uh, eventually lead to the cancellation of the season.
1: Yeah, I
2: mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know that it matters more that it happened at the beginning of the season or at the end. I mean, the the reality is there's still 8 weeks to go uh in the regular season, so there's time for for this to keep happening. Um you know, there's it's encouraging I think that um you know that the other 29 teams have not had a, a you know, a whole bunch of uh uh, positive tests in this time and that uh, but uh you know we're only really now starting to see um the beginnings of, of teams traveling from place to place and that was always going to be uh a situation where where the uh where the the um levels of risk went up um you know if players aren't sticking to their hotels or um you know if they're passing through areas that uh have not been maintained uh, as as uh, as stringently as as uh uh, as mandated, um, th- then that could be a problem. So, um, you know, I think it's 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 a nerve-wracking situation all around. And and yes, there was always going to be something that came first. And you know, Major League Baseball, I think, you know, pointing to its operations manual and and saying this is why we have the sixty the sixty man player pools uh, or, or whatever. But uh, um, you know, it still seems uh like they're you know like they weren't totally prepared for this and and i I think you have to realize there's a big difference between what you know m l b you know citing its playbook uh versus the very real um and human you know issues involved with with regards to players getting infected even if they're asymptomatic i mean we've seen um link you know uh people who 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 get uh, diagnosed and uh with with uh uh coronavirus um can have comp- complications There was just a study today. Uh, that was written about that had, uh, um, you know, basically even even uh, uh, people who had who'd been hospitalized with infections were showing it's uh, equivalent to, um, you know, maybe along the lines of what uh, Eduardo Rodriguez of the Red Sox. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it's a scary situation.
0: More with Jay as we keep things moving here on Sports Talk, including uh, the storyline last night with the Dodgers, Astros, and the eight-game suspension on Joe Kelly. But before we get Jay's take on that, let's go right now to Adrian in this bottom of the hour Sports Center update. All right, Adrian, thank you very much. We're back right now with Jay Jaffe uh, talking baseball, and in a little bit we'll be talking some beer with Jay on the program. Last night, anybody that watched the uh, Dodgers-Astros game and had a chance to see uh, Joe Kelly and what um, made him... Very quickly, a social media phenomenon. Some are already calling him a an American hero uh, after what went on with uh, Kelly and the Astros. Well, Major League Baseball decided today eight game suspension for the uh, incident that led to Benchins being cleared and and um, you know Kelly throwing at uh, two to three different Astros. You tell me, Jay. You've had a chance to probably review last night's game and what went down. First off, did base go too far with the eight-game suspension they threw at Kelly today?
2: Well, look, I'm somebody who's argued uh, in favor of longer suspensions for for obvious head hunting, and and this was, I think, uh, I I think this falls under the definition, you know, Kelly didn't have to hit uh, Alex Bregman to know that, uh, or, you know, for everybody in the world to know that uh, uh, that was a purpose pitch, and sure, it's better that he didn't hit him than if he did, Um, but there was clearly clearly intent there. And look, under normal circumstances, in a 162-game season, I think an eight-game suspension would be about right. Um, However, there's there's a matter of proportionality here. Uh, In a 60-game suspension, and eight eight games out of 60 games is the equivalent of a 22-game suspension. You know, we see this in the playoffs. If somebody gets suspended in the playoffs, it's taken into account the fact that uh, uh, you're sidelining them for for a huge part of the series, and so you only see, you know, one or two-game suspensions here and there Um, so as not to blow things too far out of proportion. I think that has to be taken into account here, even given the fact that MLB also has mandated uh, that uh, you know, that teams not use the Astros for target practice, and that uh, uh, teams not clear the benches for uh, you know, in this uh, uh, precarious uh, time of of, of uh, you know, return to play, you know, keeping social distancing and all that. Um, I, I think MLB is trying very hard to send a message here, uh, but the reality is is that uh, uh, lengths of suspensions go on precedent, and precedent says. Uh, that this is way out of proportion, even if MLB is trying to send a message, so I expect this to get knocked down. I think probably something on the order of four or five games is where this is going to end up
0: you 're not surprised that everybody loved what Joe Kelly did yesterday yeah, look, there's a lot of
2: anger there 's a lot of anger at the Astros, uh, particularly because they you know they did not uh, no players were suspended i i get I get that 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 anger is still there I, but I also have to say that uh, Joe Kelly is Maybe not the best messenger, because uh, he was on the 2018 Red Sox, who themselves were uh, uh, found to be guilty of uh, some level of illegal sign stealing. So he's not, uh, you know, even though the the, you know, the relievers are like the the last to know in any of these situations, he is he does not really have the highest ground to stand on there, um, you know. So I think that. Uh, um it's you know he has a reputation of of being something of a headhunter an enforcer a wild thing there was that video over the uh over the um, uh, during the the uh uh the the pause the, the the pandemic pause uh where he was working out and uh, uh instead of throwing the ball into the net he he broke a window in his home <laughs> i turned to emma last night my wife and i said was joe kelly just running a long con uh, you know as far as his wildness um, maybe he was, but, uh, um, it, it, it's an interesting situation. There's a lot of levels to unpack, but it, in the end, I, I don't think that, uh, he has the high moral standing to, uh, to be the one to administer the frontier justice.
0: Do you think it's over with these two teams or do you think that can continue tonight?
2: Um, I think that...
3: Last night was probably a
2: real release. I think that um, it's entirely possible that both benches will be warned before first pitch tonight um, in light of uh, what happened last night. Um, At the very least, there's going to be a stern message uh, from the umpires talking to both uh, Dusty Baker and uh, Bob Garrett, who's filling in for... Dave Roberts, because Dave Roberts got suspended. I think if MLB wants to be serious about the ben- about you know leaving the benches, I mean it ought to be suspending more players uh, for having gotten uh, you know gotten up off the uh, uh, benches and onto the playing field yesterday. If that's it, that's the only way you're going to, to set a precedent uh, that that is something you're going to suspend for, rather than uh, you know take it all out on, on, on Joe Kelly.
0: Yeah, I hear you on that one, and and I'm also I also wonder. Okay, so let's just say teams keep throwing at the Astros all season long. When does Houston get to the breaking point, where they eventually decide, all right, we're either going to retaliate or fight back?
1: Well,
2: I I, I don't know. I mean, I, look, I don't think they have any high moral ground to stand on. You know, they were found guilty. They don't,
0: but I mean, but but do you expect them? to I mean, there's going to come a point though that if they keep getting thrown at the whole season. Well, Dusty, just tell them take it the whole year and don't do anything. Or do you think they'll eventually get I, to a point look, where they just I, decide? I, I, I,
2: I will say, Dusty, if I say, look, you know, I, I understand if you want to do it, you don't have you don't have my endorsement. But if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. I'm not going to stop mm-hmm. you. Um, you know, and that person is going to be made an example of. I mean, let's just say it's You know, I would, you know, whatever pitcher, and he's going to he's going to get uh, uh, a suspension that's probably disproportionate as well.
0: I hear you. All right. What do you have coming up for us next at Fangraphs.com?
2: Uh, I'm working on something interesting um, that's got kind of lost in all the uh, um, you know the the big news about the the, the outbreak on the Marlins. But um, Jimon Choi, the uh, first baseman for the Rays, uh, has been batting left had had been batting left handed for his entire major league career, starting in 2016. On Sunday, he came to the plate and batted right handed and hit a home run uh, in his second plate appearance batting right handed. It's remarkable achievement. Um, it's very, very, very rare for a player to take up switch hitting in mid-career. Uh, I found a couple of precedents with the help of Baseball Reference, uh, some, some, some backroom research uh, by, by Sean Foreman that I'm going to share. Uh, but that's the big thing I'm, I'm writing about for tomorrow. And uh, I'm probably going to take a look at uh, starting pitcher usage and, and, and patterns and how uh, uh, starters have not been going very deep into games, probably because of the uh, uh, relatively quick uh, ramp up uh, in July. Be taking a look at that uh, either later this week or early next week.
0: How about Beer Pick of the Week, Jay? What would you like to profile for our listeners this week?
2: Okay, this is a fun one, Steve. I think you'd like this one a lot, um, knowing uh, that you fall similarly on the spectrum to me. This is the McKellar in Hell. Um, good luck, gotta love the name. Uh, this is a, uh, it's a, it's a dark lager uh, that has uh, a bit of uh, hot pepper in it. It's a cherry-smoked malt, crystal malt, black malt, finished with a kiss from a single Carolina Reaper pepper. Um, I honestly didn 't taste a whole lot of pepper, uh but what I did get was a nice uh uh smoked black lager taste with a little bit of a chocolatey, sweet and bitter balance. Uh, it was really nice i, I went through a four pack uh, uh one a night four nights in a row, and I was like, oh man, I gotta get back to the store and get some more of this stuff so uh, I really liked it. It was uh look, what it, what it comes in on and I think it's about uh it's only about four uh, point seven percent a b v good session beer. Um, and, again, the, the pepper wasn't overwhelming, maybe a, a mild sting, and uh, just a really nice beer.
0: So you cut out when you mentioned the name of the beer, and then we got the description right afterwards. Oh, What's I'm the sorry. beer it's called?
2: Forecast in Hell by McKellar Brewing, oh. M-I-K-K-E-L-L-E-R. And I know we've talked okay. about McKellar here a couple times on the show uh uh, before they're a really good brewery they're actually they have a, they have it out at city field unfortunately we're not going out to city field any time to drink anytime soon but uh, um uh, I believe it's a danish brewery or, uh, originally and the guy's twin brother uh runs evil twin brewing
0: oh cool now is um forecast in hell um is that a regular rotation or is that a special brew
2: i i don't know it is the fir- i i i can't remember if i'd seen it before or not um I suspect it's probably one of theirs that they rotate in and out. Uh, um, but uh, this was really nice. And, uh, um, you know, like I said, I'll look for it. I'm still looking for the Pilsner of theirs I had last summer with Yuzu in it. I thought that was an outstanding summer beer. Uh, I hope they bring that one back.
0: So the next time somebody is at City Field watching a Mets game when fans are inv- invited back, you definitely recommend the McKellar Brewing Company.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Fantastic. All right, we got it down. Jay, terrific stuff. We'll talk to you right back here next Wednesday on the show.
2: Okay, sounds great, Steve. Thanks.
0: From Jay Jaffe over to ABC 7 News with Eric Elkin. It's next here on 600 ESPN El Paso. Hour 2 of Sports Talk is underway. Welcome back, everybody. He's Adrian Broadus. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. And we've got a special guest joining us to begin our second of three today. Nate Ryan is not just a uh, sports anchor and reporter for KVIA television, who you can follow on Twitter at Nate Ryan sports, but he also has his own cardboard cutout for locomotive FC matches, which I don't know if there's any other sports journalist in town that has uh, a cutout. Uh, probably nobody, I don't know if anybody paid for a cutout uh, besides Nate, but that uh, again uh, is very cool because how many sports casters can say that he, um, reported on the story right next to himself probably nobody so he joins us live here to begin our two of the program nate good to have you back how you doing yeah,
4: Steve, you you look hard in the uh in the section out there i think you've got colin beaver sprinkled in there you know he's somewhere in there but uh now it's, it's it's tough to tell which uh which one's the real one and which is the fake one sometimes with, with me but uh now i'm doing well Steve. thanks very much for having me on the show
0: do you know what what section you're in at the uh, at the stadium where they put you?
4: So they, uh, so they're. I think they all have it behind. It's one hundred one hundred five. I think it is.
0: Uh, oh, very nice. Right you're in the uh, where the eighth notch one of the was. Goals yeah. Right there. I like I think that one hundred five. Yeah, that's it, terrific. But uh,
4: no, it's it's been a lot of fun being at those being at those matches now too. I mean, obviously close to the uh, close to the general public, but. Um, while well, they wait at the pandemic, but but for us journalists who are at the game covering it and, and shooting it, uh, it's a lot of fun because you you can really hear the conversations that are going on on the field. I mean, the in-game you know strategy between the coaches, the players, you know, barking out orders on the field. It, it's kind of it's very eerie, but it's cool.
0: How close are you to the action? How close are they allowing you to the action?
4: So we, they're uh, probably about five feet outside of the the field of play there is a little barrier like a little kind of red tape caution tape sort of not caution tape but like a red tape where we have to stand behind other than that um we can go literally anywhere in the stadium i mean we if we want to get some shots from you know a more aerial view if we want to go up into the into the grandstands go up to the upper deck we can do that but uh it's very cool i mean it's kind of like uh the whole stadium is ours there's all the, all the seats are open for for business so we can go take it in from any vantage point we want
0: good for you. Now as you've been dealing with the pandemic like we all have and and uh, you know sports casting from home and, and doing uh, essentially uh, you know a totally different type of uh, broadcast as as part of KVIA television uh, you got to get creative. And it sounds to me like you've had the opportunity to do that especially getting the chance to uh to to land a, a pretty special interview that you're going to show tonight.
4: Yeah, that's right. So coming up tonight on uh, ABC 7 to 10 over our airwaves, I was able to sit down with El Paso Jones, the native son, uh, Aaron Jones, coming up tonight on ABC 7 to 10. just We've got a, a, an excerpt from the interview. I sat down with Aaron about a week and a half ago, and it, it, it was just tremendous being able to you know set that up first and foremost, because a guy who's obviously leading the NFL and in, in rushing touchdowns last season, and his trajectory has just been straight up in the NFL, but... Uh, he's a bona fide superstar in this league and, and obviously we we all talk about him you know claiming him as our own here in, here in AP but the fact that he's willing to sit down with uh, a local journalist in El Paso and, and talk about why his hometown means so much to him I mean obviously there's a pandemic but it's pandemic or no pandemic every single off season he comes back to El Paso this is his home it's not like he's You know, going off to LA or or down in South Florida and going to train with teammates there. This is the place where he's most most comfortable. Um, And I sat down with him to talk about that, go in depth about why El Paso means so much to him. But also, we covered a wide range of topics. Where uh, you know, we're talking about uh, his new baby; he's a new father. We're talking about social justice issues in the NFL. Where uh, obviously he. He had an emotional open letter in the Players' Tribune about a month or so ago. Uh, we're talking about his contract status in Green Bay. We're talking about you know, why Aaron Rodgers trusts him. Uh, 23 minutes of content. Uh, it, there's going to be a, a, a long excerpt of it tonight that's going to air in our, air in our, our station. But uh, it, it was tremendous Tremendous just sitting down with him. And um, it, I, I really recommend, you know, tuning in because th- this is a opportunity to – you, you you get Aaron Jones on obviously interviews with the NFL Network and ESPN all the all the big time the big time national outlets but in this one we're talking about those same things obviously the contract and you know why he enjoys being in Green Bay everything like that but at the same time he's talking about why El Paso means so much to him and it's, it's something that everybody can resonate with.
0: Now is this a face to face or is this a a Facetime like you've done with a lot of people so far?
4: So this actually, which is the cool part about it, obviously six feet apart. But this was a th- this is the first face to face in person one on one interview that he has done uh, with a local station in El Paso. And I know that for sure. But I, probably everywhere, considering you know you know pandemic right. uh, and everything like that going up. But it is a face to face, you know, two camera shoot. It- it'll look something out of you know you know espn films or something like that but uh it it was good to sit down with them six feet apart of course it's in person
0: you got to keep the social distancing rules in effect and uh i mean that's i'm sure for you that's been probably the biggest challenge when you're doing your job is realizing that uh, there's very few of these kind of opportunities available right now
4: yeah absolutely which is why uh you know I, i was so happy to do it um because usually we're doing Zoom interviews with coaches and, and players and you know administration folks. Uh, it, it, Zoom Zoom is helpful, but when the when the internet connection at the apartment cuts out, sometimes it, it, it makes for a little bit of some, some fuzzy fuzzy audio. So uh, no, it, it was great to have that in person connection because too also with it being in person, you can be you're able to see the emotion on his face when he's talking about El Paso when he's talking about his baby. You can reading body language from them it's very real too which uh which which i was appreciative of
0: i'm sh- I'm sure now uh, nate ryan's with us from kvia is his, his um, interview at 10 o'clock how long will the excerpt be tonight and then i know you're going to put the entire conversation uh on uh, your youtube channel the station's youtube channel to be watched uh would that be following the uh following the cast tonight
4: Immediately following the broadcast of the excerpt will be about three uh, three and a half minutes, and there's some you know good shots. We've got archive footage of him at Burgess and him at UTEP, and it's all sprinkled in here, sprinkled in there, where you know you're mixing in shots of him when he's giving the calls from the Packers because we've got we, the KVI archive footage. I mean, we were there, you know, in uh, 20, 2016, 2017, I think it was. But um, no, it's, uh, it's a 3:30 excerpt, and then immediately following the show. On our website, KVIA.com, is uh, is the full-length interview, and that's about 23 minutes.
0: Okay, excellent. What did you learn the most? What was something about him that you didn't realize until after the interview?
4: Something I learned from him and that I didn't realize until after the interview was that uh, so he didn't have a cell phone the day that he scored four touchdowns against four touchdowns against the Dallas Cowboys, I, I asked him, like, when, when, was there a time that you realized kind of you were your star was shining brighter, you know, your, your phone was blown up, you're getting phone calls, texts from everybody, like, okay, you know, you, you've made it, you know, to that upper echelon of everybody. And he obviously said the Cowboys game, but he, he was telling me how he didn't have a cell phone the entire day after the game, obviously scoring four touchdowns on national television, because he dropped it in uh, a hot tub before the game. So he had no communication with social media, with you know friends and family, and he had to get a phone, like a burner phone, from one of his teammates after the game because everybody's wanting to do interviews with him and that sort of thing, and sending him well wishes. So it was literally like he he went out did his job, and uh, it, he couldn't get the recognition. Like shortly thereafter, he, he gave a pretty funny story about that. So that was one thing that I that I that I learned that I didn't know that was uh, the most entertaining, I guess.
0: Very nice. Now, uh, Aaron Jones is the first, but you've got another one coming up uh, this weekend, don't you?
4: Yeah, so uh, Aaron Jones is tonight, and then Steven Montez, former Del Valle quarterback, uh, just graduated from Colorado as one of their all-time leading passers, now with the Washington football team, uh, insert team name there. Uh, yeah, so Stephen Montez, I'm talking to you on Sunday night uh, in kind of a little, a little two-part series interview, just uh, two guys from El Paso who, who've made it to the NFL, one... Um, has already seen a ton of success. One is trying to make it there down the road. Uh, but, yes, yeah, Steven and I talked for about 20 minutes as well. It'll be the same kind of format. And we talked about, obviously, because him, he, he, he was very open about the emotions he felt. He did not get drafted. Uh, he thought he was going to get drafted, and he didn't. You know, seven, w- seven rounds went and came and didn't hear his name called. But uh, he was very open talking about, you know, the emotions that he experienced the whole process shortly thereafter. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you uh, with Steven, uh, he's a guy that I've been, I've been watching for even even before I I moved to El Paso. I I was familiar with his work, but he's a guy who he, he, he'll tell you he has the best arm of any quarterback in the NFL draft. And he's, uh, you know, he's a guy who's, you know, brimming with potential from his, from his size his intangibles. He wants to learn. He's eager. He's ready. uh, And, he, he he's very open and on the record talking about he he believes he is the best arm out of any quarterback in the entire draft and uh, you know I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in Washington.
0: That will that will air on Saturday or Sunday.
4: That's Sunday night at 10 p.m. Sunday night in our 10 p.m. primetime show. The excerpt from the interview and then again shortly thereafter uh, the, the full length interview will be on our website.
0: No, is that also a face to face?
4: That also is face to face, sitting down, one across from each other. Um, so, again, it's real because you can see the emotions on the players' faces, the body language, everything about it. Uh, the connections are not just over virtual airways, too. So, I mean, I'm optimistic about Steven because he's, he's a guy who, yes, he wasn't drafted, but he's going into a quarterback room in Washington with a lot of other young guys. Um, and part of the thing with not getting drafted is you get to choose where you kind of end up and washington let it be known that they wanted him and he's a guy too i mean he he didn't win the heisman trophy or anything like that at colorado but leaving that school is one of the all-time leading passers i mean you've got guys a cordell stewart uh sephil lufau was before him and he made his debut he made his debut season going to the pac-12 championship he also played for three different offensive coordinators so he's in terms of picking up playbooks, he, he can do that on the fly with ease. So I think I'll have a will have ai think he'll make out a, a solid career in the NFL. But all of that, he goes into such detail about, um, you know, his journey at Colorado, but what he's out to prove in the NFL is cool.
0: Looking forward to it. That's Sunday with Stephen Montes tonight with Aaron Jones. All right, follow Nate on Twitter at Nate Ryan Sports. You can check him out at uh, ABC Seven and uh, watch uh, him tonight as well as on Sunday. Good job, Nate. Appreciate the time and uh, thanks for uh, giving us the lowdown.
4: Steve, thank you so much as always for having me on. I greatly appreciate it and and love tuning into you guys every afternoon.
0: Thank you. We'll look forward to talking to you soon. Keep in touch from Nate Ryan over to Charlie one with traffic. Hey, we got a lot more coming up. Jeff Erickson's next. Then Russ Bradbird, top of our six o'clock hour to remember the great uh, coach in Lou Henson, who we lost uh, over the weekend at the age of 88. But first Charlie, how are we doing traffic wise this hour? 21 past the hour as we continue. So it's been a busy week for um, sports fans. NBA starts tomorrow. Baseball is uh, in full swing despite what happened with the Marlins. Here to talk about it with us right now is our good pal Jeff Erickson from rotowire.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff underscore Erickson. By the way, are you going to purchase the – nice swing bitch t-shirts that are coming out in honor of joe kelly last night since that's what he said to carlos correa after striking him out and thus we are already seeing t-shirts being produced with those three words
3: i'm gonna miss that uh steve but i think it's funny but that's just not my uh style but uh, no, I, it, it is rather amusing, though, I will say that. Um, and I saw something, and I don't know if it's legit, his Instagram page, but even after the suspension, he's completely unrepentant, which is pretty extraordinary to no.
0: me. Matter of fact, he's appealing. So he's he's in the lineup tonight. He's actually playing uh, for the Dodgers against uh, Houston tonight.
3: Yeah, so the uh, you know, funny know thing is he wasn't even on that Dodgers team in 2017. Uh, that lost the Astros in the World Series. He was on the Red Sox team that got beat by the Astros, though, uh, that year. He's also on the Red Sox team that also won by cheating in 2018. So, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll just table with that. You know, I'll I'll say this. I think it's embarrassing for Major League Baseball that no players got suspended. Uh, I think that they had plenty of... Information without having to offer blanket immunity to all the players to find out the extent of what things were happening, um, and maybe they wouldn't have got the complete total picture, but they had enough of a picture, um, and yet it's still. I still don't think Kelly should throw in, should throw it. I don't think you know, hurling ninety five, one hundred mile an hour objects at, at human beings is not a solution either. Um, I and it's certainly not at someone's head. So Kelly deserves his suspension. And Major League Baseball should have acted more aggressively towards those who actually cheated.
0: I agree with you. And I think that that is something that uh, it'll be interesting to see if this sets a precedent for future uh, situations and what happens and if other guys are going to get thrown at. I don't know if it's going to continue tonight or not or if it's over and done with. That's going to be really interesting because currently you've got uh, Dustin May pitching for the Dodgers and and the Astros are going with Christian Javier. 23-year-old. So I don't know if this is going to escalate again tonight, and maybe we might see Javier throwing at the Dodger hitters. Hasn't started yet, but it remains to be seen if this is truly over and done with, or if there's going to be more with these two teams, whether it's the rest of this series or a future series here this season.
3: Yeah, I certainly hope not, um, because well, in both cases, the team's depth at pitching has been tested already. Houston's already lost Justin Verlander. Ryan Presley's banged up, uh they've they've got a number joe smith didn't uh, join the team will harris signed with the nationals uh there's lots of reasons you know jose urquidy's not back yet from covid you know there's a lot of reasons why houston can't afford to lose another pitcher you know alex wood just went on the il for the dodgers uh they they have their own issues so i i think it would be a bad idea
0: i'm with you on that one meanwhile there's uh instant reaction to the first week or so of the baseball season, who's come out flying? That's said uh, getting your attention on the fantasy circuit.
3: San Diego Padres as a team, being a lot more patient at the plate, drawing walks, building up the pitch counts of opposing pitchers, and turning that into runs. So, uh, they, they've had one hiccup with the bullpen. They could easily be five and zero right now.
0: Very true. And the hitting's, uh, you know, I'll tell you, the one guy that's surprising me, at least out of the gate, is Will Myers, because here's a yep. guy that was, wasn't even thought to be having a full-time job to start the year, and instead, he's playing like the Will Myers that was starring in Tampa Bay years ago.
3: Yeah, and he, you know, I think, you know, most of his uh, time has come as the DH He's play a little first base, too, but it's ideal for him. You know, he, he's one of those guys that clearly benefits uh, and he's healthy this year. He was not healthy last year, and that's a, also a big part of the deal there.
0: How excited are you about uh, Nate Pearson's debut tonight uh, for the Toronto Blue Jays?
3: Oh, very! Uh, and he's he lived up to it so far. Zero zero in the fifth, uh, and going against Scherzer, it's been it's been fun to watch.
0: There's some good pitching matchups tonight. I also like the uh, game going on in Cleveland right now between uh, Giolito and Plissac. That's scoreless.
3: Yeah, and Giolito bounced back after a rough start against the Twins. Twins get a lot of uh, teams, a lot of pitchers. Uh, But uh, he's bounced back, had a couple Ks that first inning. You know, It was good to see him get off to that good start. But Plesek, that's been impressive, too. Now, I understand the White Sox aren't quite at full capacity right now, a few injuries themselves in that lineup, but that's still a really strong lineup. It's been a nightmare for the White Sox so far. Got swept in the doubleheader yesterday they could they could they need a win pretty bad after uh, stumbling out of the gates against Minnesota too
0: other than Dallas Keuchel and Giolito tonight their starting pitching has been awful so far
3: and that was always kind of the risk you know uh, that was that was like their weakness uh you, you know Dylan Cease struggled as a rookie last year struggled with his command you know it's i think a lot of people thought he'd fix things and it takes more than just saying okay I'm fixing it. I'm going to I'm going to control it better No, it he actually, it's a lot harder to do, uh, and he's struggling with that. And you know, you know, it doesn't help that another guy, Carlos Rodon, is a guy that's you know, coming off a long, a lot of missed time. Uh, there, there's lots of reasons to be skeptical of this rotation. Even Keikel, I mean, he had a good outing, but you know, in the in the American League, well, I guess in in, any, in a DH league, a guy that doesn't strike out guys that much to begin with, kind of worry about that a little bit. Maybe he, maybe these pitch to contact guys are the ones that are better. Who knows? Uh, I I tend to think that it would be the opposite, but Alec Mills looked good the other day and without really striking anybody out. Keiko looked good. Ryan Yarbrough had a pretty good first outing. Kyle Hendricks actually struck guys out in his first outing. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something to that there. The guys that just throw strikes.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. I'll tell you another guy that I'm excited about was Corbin Burns of Milwaukee because he's in the rotation and he and he actually had a really nice first start.
3: Yeah, I didn't go deep in the game but he got six K's and three and two thirds. Like to see him go a little deeper. Uh, I'm big on him. I have him in a lot of places. So he's a guy that I, you know, I'm counting on a lot from. But he, not he's not guaranteed to start. That's the thing. They have a couple guys coming back from injuries: uh, Eric Lauer uh, and Brett Anderson. And so, you know, we'll see if he's allowed to keep getting more starts. I think Freddie Peralta is already going to be bounced out of the rotation. We'll see. But those are two guys I was kind of hoping to see that would get an extended run. But given how Pitchers aren't going deep into games right now. Maybe it's a little bit better to be that first reliever out of the pen if you're trying to chase some wins.
0: Or if you're the Dodgers keeping guys like Ross stripling around and also Dustin May because of all the injuries they're having yep. to deal with in their rotation right now. Oh, my gosh. Just think about this. Think about that trade.
3: Two things that happened in that trade. Not just that they got Mookie Betts, but the uh, Red Sox. They didn't want Bruce our Greater all. They, they backed out of that part of the deal. They got scared on his medicals. They had them re- force them to reform the deal. And Greater All is throwing 100 miles an hour out of the bullpen. They need that right now, especially now with Kelly suspended, although we'll see when he actually has to serve it. Uh, and then Stripling, that part, you know, that was kind of like a separate deal, but kind of in con- concert with that. The Angels had a deal with, in place for uh, Stripling to go to Anaheim. Uh, and, you know, Artie Marino got fed up wait- waiting for the Greater All part of the deal to get done, pulled, that, you know, pulled out of the deal. And just think how much the Dodgers need stripling right now. They, they got lucky that it happened this way.
0: One other young arm I want to ask you about before we get to Sports Center Brady Singer, 23 years of age. Kansas City has a ton of good young prospect arms. Singer's the first one to come up and looked really good in his debut.
3: Yeah, he, he sure did. And. You know, it, to me, it was interesting. They didn't play time with his service time either. They play around with his service time. Started game two of the season. Made the opening day roster. He's he's good to go. And you know, uh, without any AAA experience, I, I'm impressed that Kansas City decided to choose for development instead of service time. Now, I think that's always the smart play of pitching. Sp- pitchers get hurt all the time. I think you're better off just, you know, you know, in, in, and usually not nearly the same high ceiling as there is for. Uh, for for batters, so I you know I got to say, good on Kansas City for doing that. It's kind of like the Padres last year with uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. I know you guys would have liked to seen him in El Paso, but from a uh, what's right for the player sort of thing, they did they did right by him. That's gonna you know
0: absolutely. That, oh,
3: hopefully, it'll yeah. pay dividends in the long run, as opposed to like Chris Bryant in Chicago, who's extremely unhappy at how he got treated.
0: Yeah, well, meanwhile, the Cubs are 4-1. Um and they're playing right now the Reds, uh, scoreless after 3. The Reds are off to a 1-and-4 start, which is disappointing. I guess the good news for the Reds is at least they're able to get a couple of guys back in the lineup in Mustakas and Senzel.
3: Yes, yes, that's huge. Uh that they, you know, cuz that, that was that was uh, you know, Mustakas was actually off to a good start too in his first couple of games and then Wakes up, he's not feeling well, and this this Paul was hang, you know, hanging over the team. First is Matt Davis in the day before, and then Moustakis, and then you know, Sendel the same day. But in both cases, they didn't test positive. They never tested positive. So they, they just had symptoms, cold symptoms. And out of abundance of caution, afraid that it might be COVID, they got held out uh, in quarantine. Now it turns out that they're, they're, they're clear of that, at least for now. Uh, so they can play again, which is good news for them. But the bullpen's the real story here. It's been awful. Uh, The raw offense hasn't been great either, but those two bats missing explain some of that. But, you know, Mike Lorenzen's given up homers in all three games he's pitched in so far. Uh, Iglesias gave up a big homer against the Tigers. Robert Stevenson gave up a homer and now went on the IL. Uh, Amir Garrett even gave up a homer. He looked good in his previous couple games. Uh, They've had, I think, six different relievers give up home runs so far. So, what was thought to be a strength, that, that bullpen, has been a big letdown for them. And that's what uh, prevented them from catching up uh, and taking advantage of Craig Kimbrell's meltdown on Monday night. And it's what got them the loss last night.
0: More with Jeff as we keep things moving here on Sports Talk. But first, it's Adrian and the bottom of the hour is Sports Center Update. All right, Adrian, thank you very much. Jeff Erickson back with us, Rotowire.com. So many great articles on the website. I liked uh, James Anderson's Farm Futures quick hits and uh, overreactions, but that's just, uh, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg because in the last couple of days, you've cranked out more than half a dozen new stories right now on the site.
3: Uh, well, there's, there's plenty to talk about now, right? Uh, we're super excited right. about that. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, trying to get you ready for a in your DFS lineup or reviewing exactly what's been going on. Uh, yeah, it, it's, you know it it's just the machine is rolling on whether it's Dave Regan like diving into like hard hit rates and things like that uh Jason Collette uh, looking at opening pitching uh, opening weekend pitching observations a lot of good stuff there and uh i it's exciting uh, you know all of a sudden we've got you know we went from zero to this just flood of great information and you know i love it just uh it, it's great i i'm I'm seeing that ratings are really high on TV for all the the baseball games, and that makes me really happy, too. Shows that people have just been thirsting for this.
0: Mike Trout off to a very slow start, and, you you know, you see you have 60 games. Hopefully he'll pick it up soon. Nelson Cruz is 40 years old, and he is absolutely on fire for yeah. Minnesota.
3: Yeah, uh, that Sunday game was incredible. Two homers and an RBI double in that one, seven RBI against the White Sox. Yeah, he, he's locked in already. Uh he, he he's taken the David Ortiz career path, you know. He he's started a little later, um, and he's still raking, and it's it's beautiful to see. And taking advantage of a good ballpark and apparently a good schedule so far too. Carlos Martinez got got last night. Um, that was probably predictable, but you know, if you had Martinez, it's frustrating because he didn't pitch over the opening weekend against the Pirates. Instead, he draws the Twins in Minnesota. You're like. Thanks guys, appreciate you there. Uh, and he takes adva- and he, he got taken advantage of it pretty quickly there. So yeah, that's, that's re- you know the Cruz looks great. That Minnesota lineup is just so good. Polanco is stru- strong. You know, Kepler had like two homers on opening day. You know they go top to bottom. They're really strong. They just got to get By- Byron Buxton healthy, basically.
0: There you go. Um, as far as the Trout goes, when you're dealing with a guy like this, he could turn it on any moment. Uh, it's it's never a concern, is it?
3: Yeah, uh I am not concerned in the slightest about him. I understand he's got a lot on his mind. You know, his wife is due next week and we'll see how much time away from the team he'll have. Uh that's the reason why we are uh, worried about him, you know, him falling a little bit is the, the potential for him to slip in drafts, but uh it, that's why cuz the potential for him to miss time could be 3 games, could be 0 games, could be 7, who knows. So, uh that's the tricky part, but uh yeah, I, I'm pretty confident he'll be fine in the long run. And Same with Christian Yelich in Milwaukee, another slow starter right now. Uh, unless there's something physically wrong with him, you know,
0: guys slump all the time. Are you buying into uh, Kyle Lewis and his start? Yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, he's, he's a guy that is, I think he's going to produce
3: a lot of things. It's probably going to come at the expense of batting average in the long run. I think he's a high-variance guy. He's not going to walk a lot. He's going to strike out a, a good amount, and he's going to make a lot of hard contact. Uh, so you just hope he makes enough of that hard contact over the long run.
0: Absolutely right. Another guy that's off to a great uh, start is uh, Colin Moran with Pittsburgh.
3: Yeah, he, he you know, that that's the uh, kind of guy that was off my radar. I, I even had, he was, I, ha- I had to replace Mike Moustakis this week in the league thinking that he's going to be gone, you know, he was going to be gone for a while and instead uh, he's back this week. But, you know, I, I had a list of third basemen to go after, picked up Rio Ruiz instead of uh, Moran and, that only immediately came back to bite me, but uh, that's okay. Um, we'll move forward. You know, the bids had to be done on Sunday before we knew that this uh, Baltimore series was going to be completely canceled. So, uh, uh, and Moran, of course, had two homers on Monday. So uh, he's got this power. He's he's always had a decent amount of power, but I think this is one of those guys that you know, in a short uh, sprint season, maybe his batting average downside doesn't come into play as much.
0: No doubt. Uh, I'm looking at some of the other guys. Uh, Sonny Gray's pitching tonight. He's been off to a great start. Yep. It's a shame about uh, Sandy Alcantara getting uh, COVID because he had a very nice first start yes, for Miami. Did. And then Dylan Bundy. I'm wondering if maybe he can thrive and finally gets the heck out of Baltimore and goes to the Angels.
3: Yeah, uh, I, and he sure looked good in that first start against Oakland. Uh, that's a guy I have a lot of. Uh, I was, you know, I had a pretty aggressive ranking on him. Uh, thinking that, A, his pitch mix would probably change, and, B, the change in ballparks would ha- help. Yeah, I, I just, that's a tough place to pitch in the American League. In, in Camden Yards, in, yeah, in that ballpark, uh, it's, it's just tough. And in that division, of course, you face a lot of Yankees, a lot of Red Sox, a lot of Blue Jays. Blue Jays are another team off to a pretty good start and an exciting young offense. So, yeah, uh, definitely that that's, change of scenery is definitely good for him.
0: No doubt. All right. Uh, let's talk about the website. We've we've spent so much time talking fantasy baseball. Hey, basketball season resumes tomorrow, and I know you yeah. guys got a ton of basketball content up.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll be watching it. I, am not, I don't have any fantasy uh, skin in the game, or at least not now. Maybe for the playoffs we'll do something. I know the uh, NFBKC has a postseason contest that's pretty good, but uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up to speed to kind of put in that change to try to play because – Man, uh, that's, there's a lot going on, but uh, we got our crew on it. Nick Whalen runs our hoops coverage at RotoWire, wire and it's his birthday today. So if you uh, see him on Twitter, right. wish him happy birthday. But, uh, you know, it, it's, we've got all sorts of good content there. We've got hockey content. I'm actually doing a postseason pool. Uh, we're in it, doing a slow draft. We've got to speed up our slow draft so we can finish in time for the start of the season.
0: Absolutely right. Check him out. RotoWire.com, your premium source for fantasy sports. You can get a free 10-day trial subscription as well. And if you ever need somebody good for a basketball a podcast, uh, don't worry. Adrian's got you covered. I promise oh, yeah? you that. All right. Oh, yeah. Good to know. He's a junkie. He is He is to the NBA what uh, what we are to baseball, football, and just about everything else. So, yeah,
3: Love it. That's great. Awesome. awesome to hear.
0: We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Jeff. All
3: right.
5: Thanks,
0: Steve. Jeff Erickson, RotoWire.com, as we keep things moving here on Sports Talk. Eric Elkins back, ABC7 News, then Charlie One, then Hour 2 coming to a close. Russ Bradbury still to come. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues It's 600 ESPN El Paso. Final hour of Sports Talk underway. Welcome back, everybody, as we continue here on the program. Super excited about having Russ Bradbury with us to begin the hour. And we just confirmed Jimmy Collins, who played on the 1970 New Mexico State Final Four team, will join us in just about 20 minutes while we have Russ with us to to talk about his memories of playing for Coach Henson many years before Uh, Russ Bradbird was on the coaching staff because, as uh, all of you know, Russ got his start at UTEP uh, with Coach Haskins in the 80s and 90s, and then later on joined uh, Coach Henson when he came back to New Mexico State in the late 90s through the mid two thousands, and Coach Bradbury joins us on the phone lines right now. Russ, I know uh, for so many like yourself, it's been a very tough, tough day when you heard the news. So uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and giving us a little time today.
1: Uh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, he was a he was a great man and a wonderful person to be around and work with. Um, and I knew he was declining, and you know he nearly made it to ninety, and uh, uh, so I'm I'm hanging in there.
0: When was the last time you had a chance to talk to Coach Henson?
1: Well, I talked to him about a month ago. I, I, I still called every month, and generally you'd talk to Mary, and, and then she would put Lou on. But, I, you know, he was living in Champaign the last few years, and I'm usually in Chicago in the summers, And so went down last summer and spent a couple of days with him. But he was, it, you know, it was funny. His short term memory was wobbly. But here's where it got weird, Steve is I remember we were, I was talking, we, Mary and I and Lou were talking about the desegregation of New Mexico state and how it was always been a leader in racial progress. And we were talking about George Knight. And I can't remember the years, but George Knight and Billy Joe price, two of the first black players at New Mexico state. And Mary said something. I like, go, oh, that was 1957. And Lou said, no, no, that was 1958. And suddenly his memory came and I thought, well, I've got my phone here. Let me just look it up. And sure enough, Lou was right. And so his long-term memory was, was always great. But he, you know, but he was, he, was, he was getting sort of fuzzy on short-term stuff. Um, but, but the other amazing thing about him, Steve, is I remember going to the Aggie basketball banquet, was it a year ago or a year and a half ago, and he was in a wheelchair, and he was already wearing a mask. You know, Lou was always ahead of the times anyway. And he was wearing a mask because his immune system had been compromised because of the leukemia. And I was sitting with him, and person after person came up and said, Coach, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing great. I just thought, God, when the guy in the wheelchair with the surgical mask can tell everybody how great he's doing, that's a pretty remarkable. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable person.
0: That is pretty remarkable. Now, did you um, when you started as an assistant coach at New Mexico State was it originally with Lou Henson or did you start with Neil McCarthy?
1: No, I was with Neil McCarthy for three years, and then when Jim Paul was hired, uh, Jim got the the and and. and problems developed with with neil mccarthy jim paul you know the great el Pasoan, got the idea that that maybe he could lure lou out of retirement i didn't know he was doing it at the time i already said that's a crazy idea nobody retires and they can go coach again a year later but i think lou had i think lou had had just with the year off lou had sort of gotten his his battery sort of recharged and so jim went to him and I didn't know Lou well, even though he, you know, I'm a Chicago guy and, and Lou had plenty of Chicago connections. I, I, you know, I met him a dozen times where I'd shake his hand and say hi and that kind of thing. But, uh, but I knew Jim Paul pretty well. You know, and, and, and Jim had, you know, Jim had, uh, had, had you know, had seen my career at, at UTEP and watched my career unfold. And so I think Jim was able to convince Lou we need to keep a person on the staff. And why don't we keep why we keep Russ on the staff? So that's how I was able. You know, usually when a new coach comes in, everybody goes. And so I was yep. uh, I, I was I was incredibly lucky to I was incredibly lucky to stay on, and it had to do with it had to do with Jim Hall.
0: Were you the only assistant from the prior regime that was uh, able to stay on board past that uh, that season?
1: Yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, Steve. It was highly unusual, and so uh, yeah. I think. Uh, I think Lou was, I think Lou was in, uh, not opposed to it partly because he knew, you know, that, you know, I, other than, other than Illinois, no, you know, nobody had done better with Chicago kids other than Illinois than UTEP. And so I think he, he'd seen, uh, you know, I, I think he'd seen that I had done okay and made some, made some, made some good choices in Chicago. And we knew a lot of the same people and, and, uh, and, and things worked out pretty well. And when I, when I, you know, I didn't have a great, Feeling about Lou because he was such a rival of you know the t- there was times when you know the New Mexico State and uh, UTEP rivalries were so big and I didn't under I, I didn't understand it at the time why was uh, why did New Mexico St- why did UTEP hate New Mexico State so much because the- we always got along the p- coaches always got along and the players were all friends but I-, I I know now what what had happened is that when Lou took the job it was right after Don Haskins had won the national championship. And so there's the defending national champions, and they're going to play a new coach, Lou Henson. Well, Lou beat him the first the, the, that year twice, and then beat him the next four years in a row, swept him five years in a row. So Lou Henson started off ten and zero against Don Haskins, and and has an overall you know overall a large a, you know a huge. Well, I think he's fourteen and eight overall against uh, against Don Haskins, and nobody who played Don Haskins that many times has a winning record against him. And so uh, the the my the story I've always told Steve is that you know you you'll remember a few years ago when Dan Wetzel the guy who wrote the book Glory Road the great sports writer he mm-hmm. wrote an uh, essay an article when Don was still alive saying that Don Haskins is the greatest coach in the history of college basketball and his case had to do with the fact that you know Don did it in a place where there's not a ton of players and nobody dreams of going to El Paso someday and playing, and they weren't in a glamorous conference and they didn't have a big TV contract and he won it at a place where most people wouldn't want to go, although I love El Paso, of course, anyone who lived there lives there, loved it, but we're off the beaten path in El Paso, and he made the case that Don Haskins was the greatest coach in the history of college basketball, and that may be true, but if it's true, what does that make Lou Henson, who beat Don ten times in a row uh, you know, before, as his, as his career was unfolding and has a Huge winning record, so I uh, against against Don Hessen. So uh, that was that was the backdrop that I didn't quite understand at the time. The sort of the bitterness, and uh, you know, sort of the bitterness, not the bitter, the bitterness between the fans. And I think that's part of why Luby quickly became an icon at New Mexico State was. He immediately got the Aggies on the map by beating beating the crap out of Texas Western. And those were Nate Archibald teams. And, uh, you know, t- you know t- teams that had, had Nate Archibald on it, you know, for uh, exactly. three years of Nate Archibald.
0: Nate Archibald never beat New Mexico State, which is, which is yes. incredible when you start to think about it.
1: Yes, he never beat Lou Henson is probably the... Probably a more so, you know, so for a long time, for a long time, I think Jimmy Collins, who I guess is coming on soon, really had they really had uh, they really had Coach Haskins' number. And I don't know, I think it was more, I'm not saying that, you know, that I think it was just more of a chemistry thing is Lou's style seemed to work well against the against the, the Don, Don Haskins style. And you could make a case that they took the Aggies lightly in 1967, but what about the next four years where they?
0: kept sweeping them over and over again. Very true. Very, very true. By the way, Jimmy Collins played for the Bulls uh, and for a couple of seasons and then eventually went into coaching and obviously was part of that great 1970 Final Four team that uh, New Mexico State had. And that's the one thing you could say also about uh, Lou Henson. He's got two courts named after him, one in, in uh, Champaign, the other uh, out in you know here in Cruces at the Pan Am Center. And he's had a pair of uh, Final Four teams.
1: Yes, and and Jimmy, of course, played uh, coached on the on the on the uh, Illinois Final 14. But I, I think a lot there will be a lot written in the next few days about about all of Lou Henson's accomplishments. But to me, I, I really think Steve, that his greatness has less to do with all the wins and and, and accolades and NBA players and conference championships and NCAA trips. He was, I, re, I remember thinking after I'd worked for him for a few weeks, nobody is this nice of a person. This is not good. This is not going to, okay, let's see what he's like. when We'll see what he's, you, you learn a lot about people when they lose. And so sure enough, we lo, you know, we lose a tough game. We sort of blow it at the end. And Lou comes in the locker room and he says, you know, and I thought, okay, here we go. We're we'll going to start kicking lockers. And he hasn't sworn yet that there's going to be a bunch of F-bombs drop, F dropping out. He said, now how many of you guys think we can play better than we played tonight? And everybody sort of looked around and sort of hung their head and sheepishly raised their hands. And everyone, of course, all the players raised their hands. You know, and, and Lou said, "That's right. We can play a lot better now. We're going to come back on Monday and we're going to work harder because we've got to get this thing turned around now." Let's get our hands in here and say Aggies on three. And I thought, Wow, if that's the if that's if that's the butt chewing, he was just remarkably upbeat and he was remarkably positive. And his his first impulse, no matter what, was the smile. And the other thing that I'll never forget about him is how kind, I think you learn a lot about people by seeing how they treat people that are under them. And with Lou, he was kind to the waitress and he was really generous with the secretaries and, and, you know, the guys working on campus on the, the guys mowing the lawns on campus, he was nice to them. He took, he had time to talk to everybody and be kind to everybody, the student aides and, and student assistant coaches and, the walk-ons on the team, he was just decent with it. He was just decent with everybody, and he was, you know, he was always upbeat and always positive. And it was, in some ways, he was like Don Haskins. You couldn't get Don to talk about the past much, and it was hard to get Lou to talk about his past success also. But of course, you know, Don, as you know, Don believed in the power of negative thinking. Like, if we expect the worst, you know, we're never going to be disappointed. But Lou was just always thought that, you know, Lou always thought things were going to go well, and I'm happy with how things are going, and he's just remarkably upbeat.
0: I do know that in the 60s, Coach Haskins and Coach Henson had a huge rivalry between the two, and uh, it, was, I mean, it, went, it was deep. It went into recruiting and everything else, and you know, they both had very successful programs during that period. Coach Haskins won the national title and obviously had good teams into the 70s, and Coach Henson as well, all the way until he left for Illinois in 75, and, and there was a huge rivalry with those two when they were younger.
1: I think that's right, and the, the, stakes, the stakes were immense because think of – Think of Las Cruces in 1970, 30,000 people. And if you win, you know they were getting 13,000 fans a game because they were so so good. And of course, with, with you just I think there was less to do then, and so there was a bigger focus. You know, there wasn't the internet uh, or there was no Netflix. You didn't have a million channels to choose from. We might as well go out and see the Aggie game or see the Miners game. Here's the other interesting comparison about them, Steve, that not a lot of people know. Is that when Lou, you know, Lou was coaching at Las Cruces High and won the state championship after he'd played for the Aggies, and then he got the job at Hardin Simmons. They offered him the job at Hardin Simmons University in the Baptist School in Abilene, Texas. A small school, but they were, you know, they they had a basketball team, and Lou told them he's only going to go. He was only going to go if he could bring in African American players. They had never had now you know Don when he got when Don Haskins got to Texas Western, Nolan Richardson and Willie Brown were already on the team. It wasn't it wasn't what Don did was amazing, but there were already black players. And what Lou did to no fanfare, nobody cared probably other than the harden Simmons people. But he insisted on bringing in African American players, and he did. And how about this, Steve? He insisted on bringing Joe Lopez, a Mexican American guy who played from at uh, played from at Las Cruces High School. Brought in Joe Lopez as his assistant coach, so the first Mexican American coach at Hardin-Simmons, the first black players, and no one paid any attention to it. It was Hardin-Simmons. He had, he had good teams, of course, but they weren't on national television or that kind of thing. So it's interesting that both Don and Lou had big hands in the in the desegregation of, of, uh, of college sports. This is that Don, you know Don had the movie made about him, and and, uh, and Lou did it at, at, at Harden simmons
0: Wow, great stuff. Love the conversation we're having right now with uh, Russ Bradburn here on Sports Talk. All right, listen, we're going to bring Jimmy Collins in next, but I want you to stay with me for the hour because we'll have plenty more to talk about with you as well, okay? All right. More with Russ. Russ plus Jimmy Collins and talking about uh, Lou Henson in the 60s, what he was like when he had that Final Four team. Uh, And, of course, Jimmy Collins had such a terrific coaching career in his days after New Mexico State, but we'll do that right after Charlie One, who's going to lead off our 6 o'clock hour with this traffic update. Back on Sports Talk as we continue. We're chatting with... Russ Bradbird, who was an assistant coach for Lou Henson during his second go-round at New Mexico State in the late 90s. And now we get the opportunity to also welcome into the program Jimmy Collins, who before he became a terrific head coach in college basketball, played for Coach Henson at New Mexico State from 1967 to 1970. It was a big, big part of that Final Four team. Coach uh, Collins, thank you so much for joining us on the show as well, and obviously uh, for you and and so many people in Las Cruces that uh, and and Champagne that uh, all around college basketball got to know. Um, you know, Coach Henson. Uh, obviously, a tough day today.
5: Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And you're right. It is a tough day, and not only in uh, Las Cruces, Champaign, but uh, he rang a lot of doorbells and a lot of bells. And, uh, doorbells and not on a lot of doors in Chicago.
0: No doubt about it. And and I'm sure that, and I read the article uh, so far today in the Chicago Tribune and, and around college basketball, um, unbelievable when you look at the legacy that Lou Henson left in 40-plus years of coaching. And and I look at the you know the the seasons you had, uh, especially when you arrived in that sixty seven sixty eight year, all the way through to that uh, final four team in sixty nine seventy. You were terrific all three years at New Mexico State. Your senior year was off the charts, and so was the team that season. How did uh, did you and Coach Henson first get a chance to hook up, and and uh, you arrive at New Mexico State?
5: Well, you know what. <laughs> It's a uh, a funny thing because I never met Lou Henson before coming to Los Cruces. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to St. John's in New York and I could have went to Wisconsin. Uh, But when I went to St. John's, they were just coming off a big scandal, if you might remember. And, And then Wisconsin appeared to be a little bit too liberal for me. Now, Coach Henson had an assistant coach who just happened to be from Syracuse uh, named Ed Murphy. And Ed Murphy's dad saw me play in a summer league and called Ed and told him that he might want to come and take a look at me because I might be somebody that could could help him out down in Las Cruces. So Ed came up, and he and I hit it off. I, I loved the way he talked and the way he presented himself. And so I said, hey, you know what, I'm going to Las Cruces. Never met Lou Henson, uh, never seen him, didn't even know how he looked. Uh, But, you know, on the other side of that coin, he didn't know a lot about me either. He didn't know how I looked, and he had never seen me play. So we both took each other's word that uh, that we could play the game of basketball, and uh, it really worked out for both of us.
0: It's an amazing story, especially since you were born and raised in Syracuse. And I know you mentioned St. John's. Did Syracuse uh, also take a look at you? And did you take a look at uh, possibly staying home and going there? I did,
5: but at that time they had, they had a sharpshooter named Jim Beheim who played my position, and they had another guy by the name of Dave Bing. And uh, they were bringing in a guy uh, who was one heck of a player, too who was a, was a guard. And so I said, well, you know what? I want to play right away. Then I looked uh, in the basketball magazine, and I discovered that uh, Las Cruces had went 4-22. What's 424 4-24, something like that, the year before. And I said, well, they couldn't have a whole lot of guys that could beat me out if they went 4-24. Maybe I could go there and, and get some playing time. And so I boarded a Greyhound bus. Uh, in Syracuse, rode 2,000 miles, and uh, the rest, it worked out really well for me because, like I said, Coach Henson was taking a chance, and I definitely was taking a
0: chance. It's an amazing story, Jimmy. Now, did you know when you were playing freshman ball at New Mexico State in that 66-67 season, did you already have a pretty good idea that your freshman team was so stacked that you guys were going to be really, really good in the years to come?
5: I did have an idea because once I got to, once I got to Los Cruces, uh, there was some. Place, our whole team was new. Everybody was new. Uh, Coach Henson was new. And uh, Murphy was new. Rob Evans was new. Uh, Ernie Turner. Uh, they, we had one seven footer. wasn't a great player, but he was seven foot. Uh, I think his name was Dak, uh Jack. I can't remember it totally, but. When I got there, uh, everybody was new, everybody was anxious, everybody wanted to play, and everybody was willing to do what had to be done to make us into a pretty good basketball team.
0: It's phenomenal. I love this story. uh, Russ Bradburn was telling us before he brought you on that when he was around Lou Henson, he said, he was so nice. He kept waiting for for coach to chew out his team when they weren't playing well, but it never happened. He said he was just he was always composed, always calm. Was he like that when he was with you in those uh, you know in those late '60s teams, or was he a little different back then?
5: Well, the thing about Coach Henson is he didn't have to. Well, he had these looks now, and those looks uh, spoke volumes. And uh, and he could have you do some calisthenics and some exercises. If you weren't playing and doing the things that you were supposed to do, he would put you through these drills to let you know the next time he required you to do something, you would do it because you didn't want to go through those drills again. Uh, Russ is absolutely right. Coach was never he was never a – he was a lot of profanity. Uh, mm-hmm. He did get loud at times. But it wasn't with uh, profanity. Uh, And he could say some things sometimes that make you wish he would curse. But he wouldn't. Uh, But he knew the game. He told you what you did or didn't do. And if you didn't want to go through some of his drills a a second time, uh, you would digest what he said. And the next time, you would perform.
0: Wow. I love it. We're, we're talking to Jimmy Collins here on Sports Talk as we continue right now. Meanwhile, we mentioned this also um, that you never lost to UTEP when you played them for your three years. And you had Nate Archibald's number. Nate Archibald never beat you guys. He was the Aggies, won 10 in a row, which is pretty remarkable considering the talent that Don Haskins had assembled after that national championship team. Oh, yeah.
5: Well, I didn't have Nate's number. Charlie Chris had Nate's number. Uh, You know, and Don uh, Haskins, the head coach, had his number because Nate was a scorer. And I knew of Nate when he was in high school because we're both from the New York area. Um, I knew of him then, but he was designated to play in purely the point guard position. Charlie Chris was one heck of a defender who was strong, uh, about Nate's size. Uh, quick and so he did a lot to keep Nate uh, from scoring a lot of points uh, and while Charlie was uh, holding him down and keeping him from shooting Coach Hensman wasn't holding me down and he was letting me shoot so you know it all evened out you know I was doing some shooting Charlie Charlie did some shooting as well but uh, Charlie was one heck of a defender and when Nate got past Charlie, I was there to pick him up. So he had two of us to really contend with in terms of getting his shot off.
0: For you, what was a better rivalry during your days in New Mexico State? Uh, the Lobos or the Miners?
5: You know what? I would – pretty, pretty, pretty easy. Now, the Miners – one thing about the Miners, we could never take them easy. We had to stay up. We had to practice. Coach Henson was a tactician. He knew what we had to do and who we had to attack to beat him. And the same thing with the Lobos. The Lobos, uh, I tell you something, I looked forward to playing the Miners, and I looked forward to playing the Lobos. To be quite honest with you, I don't remember a lot of the other teams that presented a challenge to us, but I do remember those two teams, and we played them quite a few times over the course of a year.
0: Russ, you liked that answer, didn't you? I heard you laugh in the background.
5: Well,
1: I, you know, I think Jimmy is very modest. Like he, he I know it wasn't him always going head to head with Nate Tiny Archibald, but Jimmy Collins owned the uh, UTEP team for, you know, for six years. And I, I think only by the bad luck of going to play for Dick Mata, I was always a Bulls fan, but he was the worst. He was the worst coach probably in NBA history to play for if you were a rookie. And back then well, there wasn't the, you know, you were locked into the contract and that kind of thing, but Jimmy made a huge impact. And one of the things that, you know, I'm a Chicago guy and Jimmy's more or less a Chicago guy now. And I think a lot of that really rubbed off on Jimmy where he, he has the same reputation in Chicago that Lou did, that he's decent and kind and he cares about the kids and he's not a huge ego. And so I think Lou rubbed off on all of us, but particularly on Jimmy Collins. I, well, I think
5: you're right, Russ. And one of the things that he did was when he was able to sit down and talk to you eye to eye, there was no question that you would digest whatever he was telling you. And maybe you would walk over and you'd say, well, you know, there were times I'd walk off from Man, man. I don't really know. And then I'd go and I'd sit on the side of my bed and I'd think about what he said. And i said, say, you know, he's absolutely right. And I'd try to present myself in that way the next day. And nine out of ten times, uh, it worked out for me. But Russ, you're absolutely right. You will never, I don't think in life, I'll ever find another gentleman that I can really, really relate to and and dislike when he's telling you something. Because when he's telling you something, he can tell you in a way that you say, I'm leaving. But then <laughs> later on, you say, well, you know, he's telling you the truth. And then he'd tell you the next day, and it would be a different approach as to what he's talking about. And uh, you, could, you could do uh, and relate to exactly what he was trying to get you to do.
1: But Jimmy, do you think do you think that he mellowed when he when he came to New Mexico State? Because I remember telling Mark Coombs, who like you was with Lou for many many years, I remember telling him what a gentleman Lou was, and he never loses his temper, and he's always upbeat. And Mark looked at me like, I don't remember that all the time. And, you know, I think he, he I think he was mostly like that. But I think he I think he was so happy to be back at New Mexico State. You know, when he was at New Mexico State, he, he couldn't walk 20 feet across campus without somebody coming up and hugging him, a secretary or Somebody said, "Oh, I went to school with your daughters, or I knew your son, or thanks for coming back." And I think he was so happy to be back. But I wonder if he mellowed, Jimmy? Do you think he mellowed at New Mexico State? Was he? Was he? Well, low? you know
5: what I think. I think Russ. I think like a lot of us, whatever characteristics we have, we learn to deal with them as we get older. You oh. know. Now, the the fact that the fact that like you thought that he never never get angry and. <laughs> That wasn't true. <laughs> he would get angry, and he would let you know he was angry. But what he never really did was beat you down in front of the public. He no, would that's right. never really out when people were around. He would never get on you in a way that would make you say, you know what, I can't take this guy anymore. He would that's never right. do that. He would uh, Now, he would tell you what you did or didn't do. And once you got in that locker room, man, he turned into the Tasmanian devil. But then yeah. once that door would open, once that door was open and there was press or people looking, they would never know he did it. And no, the also, so. other thing, Jimmy, I think were that really worked
1: with Lou, with you, and, and other ones too, like Eric Channing, who we had that was such a great guy really? if you were a shooter and a scorer, Lou was a great coach for you because he was a shooter and, and he was, he was able to sort of gear his off, you know, gear his offense. And so, uh, I, I think that he was a, a great guy to play for if you had a scorer's mentality and you
5: certainly had that. It really was a great guy to play for as long as you just start throwing up bad shots. Now he didn't, he didn't go for that. The one thing I'll never forget, we were playing, we were on our way to the final four and we played Kansas state, uh, and we weren't having a very good game. And the one thing that he never did, he would encourage you to play or to shoot if he thought you had a hot hand. But he would never say to the rest of the guys, get the ball to him. Let him huh. shoot the ball. Well, when we were playing Kansas State, uh, we weren't playing so well that Rob Evans, who was uh, 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 on the team at that time, uh, wasn't shooting well. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, uh, Jimmy, I want you to shoot the ball. That's what Rob said. I said, no, nah, man, I'm not going to let Coach get on me for taking shots.
1: <laughs>
5: so, you know, so Rob took some bad shots. Well, it, they weren't bad shots, but they just didn't go in. And uh, and uh, Coach Henson called a timeout. And that was the only time that I heard him really demand that somebody shoot the ball. And he told Rob, he told Rob, get the ball to Jimmy, and Jimmy, you shoot the ball. Oh, man, my eyes lit up like candles. Man, I said, oh, I my. He's giving me the – but, you know, because I was a shooter anyway. It wasn't that he really had to coerce me to shoot. I mean, I was going to shoot, but I wasn't going to go out of the way. Uh, but when he said shoot the ball, seemed like everything I shot up there went in. And, I mean, <laughs> uh, it was a great feeling for me, and I'll never forget that day. And he and I talked about it. And he, You know, he always tell me, I didn't mean for you to shoot every time, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> that he was uh, a that's good. awesome. If you were a shooter, if you were a shooter and you could score, uh, he would allow you to do your thing as long as you didn't really, really go overboard.
0: Now, we're talking to Jimmy Collins and Russ Bradbury here on Sports Talk. Um, as Russ mentioned a moment ago, he started with Neil McCarthy at New Mexico State and then was uh, retained by uh, Coach Henson and spent years with, uh, with Lou at New Mexico State before uh, Russ made the decision to get out of uh, basketball coaching at that point. But for you, Jimmy, after your days with the Chicago Bulls and then the Carolina Cougars and the ABA, you went into coaching first as a grad assistant at New Mexico State for Coach Henson in wow. 1973 and then you came to uh, 10 years later, and uh, joined up as an assistant at Illinois, where you spent the next uh, 13 years. So, so much of your coaching career and playing career really is tied to Lou Henson.
5: That's correct. That's absolutely. Correct. He, was, he was my godfather. Coach Henson was a, you know, every single time and uh, I don't hesitate to tell people, this, he just he knew when I was struggling in some facet of life. He knew that you know, it seemed like he would say to himself, "Well, Jimmy's struggling. I better reach out to him." Because every time I was struggling, all of a sudden I'd get a call from him and or Mary. And uh, when I when I went when I after I stopped playing, I went back to Chicago and I started a trucking business. And uh, he called me. He called me and he said, "How things going?" "That's all. They're going great." He must know I was lying. <laughs> he must just driving that truck across the country was no joke. And he said, well, why don't you come back down here and help me as a grad assistant? And I said, okay. At that particular time, I had gotten married, and I had kids. And I said, yeah, why not? Uh, and so I did it. And uh, I got back, and I wasn't sure uh, that I actually wanted to coach. But when I got into it, and I had some, some people on the team that uh, that really geared or, or, or felt like I could help him on the court, uh, then it piqued my interest a little bit more. And, uh, of course, Coach kept telling me, uh, you can work with that one, you can work with this because his mentality uh, is a little bit like yours. To this day, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I believe that he meant that the guy was a shooter or whatever. So I, I started working with some guys, Dexter Hawkins and another guy from Hobbs, New Mexico, uh, oh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. And then there was a big fella named Jim Boston, who I couldn't get away from. I mean, I, I, I he'd come to my house and like, what do you think I'm doing, Coach? So I got really, really interested in it. And Coach noticed that I was kind of working with those guys, so he kind of assigned them to me. And then it really started to pique my interest in terms of, well, maybe, maybe this is something I'm going to do. And after that, I came back to Chicago, and I started working with the Cook County Adult uh, uh, Probation Department, where I was hounding, uh, uh, class expelling. And I started doing that. And then Coach left New Mexico, and as, as luck would have, I'm telling you, the guy's like a godfather to me he left New Mexico and he just happened to end up in Champaign. Um, so he called me up and he asked me if I wanted to come down uh, to, to to see some games. And uh, I said, yeah, coach, I'd, I'd like to come down, which is about 90 miles from where I live. Uh, and so I went down. I didn't know at that time he had one of the top recruiters in the country under a gentleman named Tony Hanks. I did not know that Tony was planning on leaving and taking a job. Um, But uh, I went down, and when I got down there, it was announced that Tony was leaving. And uh, out of the clear, he asked me, would I like to come down there and coach? At that time, I was working at the probation department, class ex-felons, carrying guns, getting all kind of things shot my way. So for me to say no would have been a travesty. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah, i' like to do it and uh, i went down there my first trip was to uh yugoslavia serbia uh and uh i wasn't sure when i got there because i noticed that coaching division one ball is no cakewalk because you're dealing with <laughs> you're dealing with guys everybody on that team thinks they're gonna end up in the nba and uh there's certain ways you got to talk with them certain ways you got to deal with them. And as I learned that uh, it started to work out more, I started to get a little bit more uh, involved. And and, uh, he said, hey, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. And then he put me on the recruiting trail. Well, I had been a probation department in Chicago for a number of years. And as luck would have it, I guess you could call it luck, uh, there were a lot of ball players in the Chicagoland area who had relatives that just happened to be on probation. So when I found out who those relatives were and found out where they played ball, I started attending those summer games, those uh, 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 regular, uh, regular throw the ball up in the air games, and I got to know a lot of people, and recruiting started to become a little bit easier. And, uh, you know, it it worked out really, really well for me. So, like I said, he was my godfather because every time I needed a helping hand or some advice, he lended it, and it worked out for me.
0: Great stuff. Absolutely great stuff. Jimmy, we're up against a break, so uh, we got to come back, and we'll wrap this up with you and Russ. Can you stick around with us for one more segment?
5: I can stick. I'm just watching the Untouchables, so I'm okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Russ, you okay? I'm great, thank you. We'll come back. More with Russ Bradbury, Jimmy Collins. We'll wrap things up here. Sports Talk continues, 600 ESPN El Paso. A little more than five minutes left in the show today. It's been a terrific hour with both uh, Russ Bradbury and Jimmy Collins uh, joining us here uh, on our phone lines uh, to remember the great uh, life and legacy of uh, again, a coach that left so much uh, for so many people, Lou Henson, uh, who passed away over the weekend at the age of 88. Now, uh, I didn't realize this, Russ, while Jimmy was talking about you know getting his start as an assistant at Illinois. Um, a decade after he was a graduate assistant. You were a grad assistant at UTEP in 83, but you quickly became an assistant coach, and both of you were very much uh, bringing Chicago-based talent uh, to your teams. For um, for Jimmy, it was bringing it to Coach Henson at Illinois, and for you, it was recruiting it to El Paso and UTEP. So I wonder how many recruiting battles the two of you might have had without not even knowing it in the uh, mid-'80s. Let me, let
1: me oh. just put a stop to this kind of talk right now, Steve. I was not anywhere near the, in the league that Jimmy Collins was. As a, you know, like he had a long career as a successful head coach at the University of Illinois Chicago at UIC, and had you know recruited Final Four teams. And so I, I want to I, seriously, I, wanna, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to. But no, we never, we never, uh, we never went head to head. We were after more sleeper guys. And I think the Big Ten uh. is a different level, where whereas I, I could get a sleeper guy who was too skinny, a Johnny Smooth Melvin or. A, Marlon Maxey or somebody like that, but but Jimmy was having to play against against Indiana and Iowa mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, Indiana and Iowa and Minnesota and people. Got to, so I want to put a stop to this talk right now. Let's well, talk about Lou Henson instead. Well, one, i I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come up short on this one. I'm, 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 out, I'm serious. I'm not being falsely modest. I'm, I'm, I'm outmatched.
5: Um, well, one thing for sure, Russ, and you know your reputation was stellar too. I mean, I knew about you. And the thing was, the only reason you were outmatched, if you can call it that, was the distance. Uh, you're coming from Texas to Chicago, and I was already in Chicago. And uh, I knew a lot of people there, as I mentioned before. I was, uh, I was a probation officer there. I had played ball there. It was a lot easier for me to make the contact uh, with the top players uh, than it would have been for you. And uh, it wasn't that you weren't a top recruiter, because you were definitely that. But uh, I, had, I had what we call a guardian angel. And Lou Henson was my guardian. I call him a godfather because I had been watching uh, the godfather earlier tonight. But he was a guardian angel for me. And uh, he let me go. There were times when, uh, you know, the recruiting rules were a little bit different then in terms of you could leave the school on Monday. And you could get out, and you really wouldn't have to be back until Friday. Yeah. So you could miss almost a whole week of practice trying to convince kids that Illinois and Lou Henson was where you wanted to be. I was able to get that done because I knew a lot of people in the Chicagoland area. And recruiting is not just one person. I had myself. I had a really, really good friend of mine, Dick Nagy. And then I had Louie, and uh, when when we would get together on a home visit, we knew what to say, when to say it, and uh, we were able to attract a lot of top talent. Well, and I think
1: now, the other, gentlemen, one of the other
5: thing, Steve, I was going to say the
1: other one of the other interesting yeah. things is for us at UTEP, we, you know, if a kid came down from Chicago, they were not in the spotlight the way they were at Illinois, and so I think there was incredible pressure on Lou and Jimmy that if a kid came from Chicago, he had to do well. Like every now and then there'd be a guy who would disappoint from Chicago and that, you know, that would sort of get them in hot water. Whereas if we had a guy who didn't pan out, no one seemed to notice because we were such a long way away. So I think, I think they were under a, a very, very, you know, very different pressure. But so Jimmy was going against, you know, trying to beat, you know, Bob Knight and Clem Haskins and Lute Olson for guys. And for me, I was, we were more sort of poking around, looking for, but we the, the level as good as the whack was then. It wasn't as nearly as good as the Big Ten, and,
0: and no and
5: doubt, no doubt. You know, basketball wise, that's probably true. But you had weather, you had scenery, you had a lot of things that could attract a young man there because some of those things are part of the reason we brought some guys to New Mexico State uh, when I was down there. Uh, but you were able to get guys. I remember you got Johnny Melvy from Chicago. I remember you had another guy, but. What was his name, Selby? Uh, I think Donnie Selby came to UTF. No, no, uh, no he, was new, he, was, he was New Mexico State. But we had
1: Marlon Maxey and and Tim Hardaway, of course, and Ralph Davis. And uh, that's
5: right, that's right. Uh, uh, yeah, I know they went I, went. I know they went down in the Southwest. And uh, you know the thing about the thing about getting that far away from home is you can't really instill the discipline that you can put on a player's head. If you could say, "I'ma call your mama, boy," don't let me and she'll be here in no time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she'll be in no time when you're when you're in New Mexico or you're at UTIP, uh, And if you had to travel like I travel, you're not gonna take a Greyhound bus from uh, from uh, uh U-tip back to Chicago. So there were ways you could do some things, but they were difficult.
0: Yeah. Now I've got about a minute left to go in the show, guys. So I'll give you each about thirty or seconds or so. Tell me the one thing that you'll remember most about Coach uh, about Coach Henson.
5: Well, if I'm going first, uh, I say he was a classic guy. He was disciplined. Uh, he was the kind of guy that you could always go and talk to. He would never turn him back turn his back on a conversation. Uh, and those are things that a lot of coaches won't do. A lot of coaches are just on uh, what they do, and they don't want to uh, say anything else or hear anything else. Steve, I
1: remember that when re- re- practice started in New Mexico State, Lou's first week in town, and Mary Henson was coming in that day, but Lou couldn't get her from the airport because practice was going on. So Justin, one of our student assistants, was going to go get him. And Justin was already out in his car and came running back and said, Lou, I, you know, we were still talking to the whole team, and he said, Lou, I don't know what she looks like. What does she look like? And Lou said, well, she's about five foot. She's got brown. She'll probably have – and he said, well, she's beautiful. And this was – at that at that point, <laughs> he'd been married to Mary for 40 years. And he still – and I think, like 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 so many of us, you know, like I would say the same with Don Haskins, just He had a great, great woman behind him in, in Mary Henson. and That's uh, right. Great. Yeah, and I, and I think I think he really, really was r- totally in love with her his entire life, which uh, which I think is a real great credit to Lou.
0: No doubt, guys, terrific stuff. Jimmy, Russ, can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today, remembering Lou Henson, telling some great stories, and hey, we really enjoyed it. Thank you both again.
1: Thank right. you Thanks, Jim, Jimmy. It's good to hear your voice. Okay, man. Good See to hear you, you, Russ. Okay, man. Bye, bye. All right.
0: Jimmy Collins, Russ Bradbird, wrapping us up uh, on uh, what's been a, a terrific 6 o'clock hour here on Sports Talk. Don't worry if you missed any of the conversation. We'll have it podcast for you on our 600 ESPN uh, podcast here today. And it has been a busy one. My thanks to Jay Jaffe. My thanks to Jeff Erickson. My thanks to Nate Ryan. And, of course, this last hour with Russ and Jimmy. For Adrian Broadus, I'm Steve Kaplowitz. We'll do it again tomorrow at 4 on another edition of Sports Talk right here on 600. 600- T.S.P.N. El Paso.